I think providing a forum through which students can get a deeper understanding of, of how others have tried to do some of these things, I think can be a really rich way to share experiences. Let's discover what people are building in the greater Cleveland community. We are telling the stories of Northeast Ohio's entrepreneurs, builders, and those supporting them. Welcome to the Lay of the Land podcast, where we are exploring what people are building in Cleveland and throughout Northeast Ohio. I am your host, Jeffrey Stern, and today I had the real pleasure of speaking with Michael Goldberg, the executive director of the Veal Institute for Entrepreneurship, as well as an associate professor of design and innovation at the Weatherhead School of Management at Case Western Reserve University, where he teaches courses on entrepreneurship. Notably, Michael created a massive open online course, also known as a MOOC, for Case Western Reserve University called Beyond Silicon Valley, Growing Entrepreneurship in Transitioning Economies, a course which has attracted over 175,000 students from over 190 countries across the world. Before joining Case Western, Michael was the co-founder of the Bridge Investment Fund, a venture capital fund focused on investing in Israeli medical device companies that have synergies with the leading healthcare industries and institutions here in Cleveland. In addition, Michael served as the Director of International Business Development for AOL, responsible for structuring and negotiating international partnerships in Asia for America Online. In our conversation today, Michael covers his experience teaching entrepreneurship, and we focus on Case Western Reserve University's recently founded Alumni Venture Fund. The emergence of alumni venture funds has been one of the more exciting university trends that boosts awareness, support, and general discussions about entrepreneurship writ large within a community. And for any startup community to grow and strengthen its position, it must be able to leverage the local university. And so it was very informative to learn more about how Michael has thought about it here. If you think about the fact that at this point, just through lay of the land, we have featured over 20 Case Western alums on the show, from Charu Ramanathan of Cardio Insight and Vital Exchange, to Afif Ganum of Biome Health, to Stan Garber and Alex Yakubovich of Scout RFP, which sold to Workday for $540 million. And I think you can understand the power of such alumni funds and why this is exciting in the context of educating students about how venture capital works in addition to actually supporting founders throughout Northeast Ohio. So with that, please enjoy my conversation with Michael Goldberg after a brief word from our sponsor. Lay of the Land is brought to you by Impact Architects and by 90. As we share the stories of entrepreneurs building incredible organizations in Cleveland and throughout Northeast Ohio, Impact Architects has helped hundreds of those leaders, many of whom we have heard from as guests on this very podcast, realize their own visions and build these great organizations. I believe in Impact Architects and the people behind it so much that I have actually joined them personally in their mission to help leaders gain focus, align together, and thrive by doing what they love. If you two are trying to build great, Impact Architects is offering to sit down with you for a free consultation or provide a free trial through 90, the software platform that helps teams build great companies. If you're interested in learning more about partnering with Impact Architects or by leveraging 90 to power your own business, please go to ia.layoftheland.fm. The link will also be in our show notes. 
in preparing for our conversation today, I had taken stock of all the the Case Western Reserve University affiliated entrepreneurs who have been on the podcast and and realized that we've done you know well over uh, a dozen lay of land episodes dedicated solely to those stories, and I, I think it it speaks to the the power of educational institutions in a in a local entrepreneurial ecosystem, and I think it's a fun angle to to begin the conversation today because it pretty intuitively sets the stage, I think, to let us explore a lot of what we'll talk about, but from venture capital to startups, talent, academia, all together, I think, as, as we discuss more explicitly the recent formation of the alumni fund and, and the role that, that it can play in this space. But for one, you know, thank you for, <laughs> for coming on. Uh, very excited. Uh, long time in the, in the making. Great. Well, thanks, Jeffrey, for having me. It, it's wonderful to be here. And I'm a listener to the podcast, so I'm honored to be part of the Case Western Reserve University growing uh, club of entrepreneurs and supporters of entrepreneurship to, to be guests. So, you know, with with your own familiarity with, with the show, I, I think it always is helpful to to set the stage with a little context on on who you are as a as a person as we make our way towards the the bulk of what we'll we'll talk about uh, today. Um, but perhaps you can, you know, just share a little bit about your own journey and, and story, and uh, how you got to to where you are today. Sure, happy to. Um, I'm a native Clevelander, grew up on the east side of Cleveland, and you know, been sort of interested in entrepreneurship, sort of broadly speaking. I mean, the days in those days, there wasn't a lot of necessarily high school entrepreneurship, even collegiate entrepreneurship. Um, there were kind of pockets of it. Um, certainly now we're really blessed um, in Cleveland and other communities where that entrepreneurial itch is able to get scratched even by middle schoolers or high school students. But so I was kind of interested, but then I went off. I did my undergrad at Princeton where I studied public and international affairs and then lived overseas for several years um, running projects in South Africa. Initially, I was teaching in a rural black school and then I was um, working on a voter education program funded by the U.S. Agency for International Development um, for South Africa's first democratic elections um, when Mandela was elected in 1994. So really interesting sort of seeing the world. Wasn't quite sure what I wanted to do when I got home. I stayed there for three years and ended up applying to joint MBA and international affairs programs from South Africa and, and landed at Wharton where I did my MBA in a um, Johns Hopkins School of Advanced International Studies, where I did my master's in international affairs as a three-year program. It was well-timed for me in that it was sort of the beginning of the sort of internet 1.0. I, I did a summer internship out at Microsoft, working on the pre-Xbox, something called the Internet Gaming Zone, and then <laughs> um, got a job right after I graduated from the joint program at America Online, AOL, back in the uh, internet days. <laughs> Uh, it's funny when I ask students now if they've heard of it. Many of them have not, but we were once the largest, certainly, internet company in the world and uh, merged with Time Warner when I was there. And I worked in a group that focused on international business development, which was super interesting and kind of was there when it went up and was there when it came crashing down. And in 2023, we were seeing these elements again. So, um, you know, I've, I've lived long enough that I've seen a couple of these cycles and my first kind of job out of grad school was was part of it. Stayed at AOL for five years, worked on joint venture formation in Asia, then ended up through a family connection, connecting with 
an entrepreneur and investor was based in Israel and we set up a small venture capital fund to invest in early stage medical device companies that were coming out of Israel sort of pre-US commercialization and a lot of synergies with the healthcare institutions here. And that's what brought me back to Cleveland. At that point, I had two little kids. We had a, we added a third. And so I moved back, back home, brought my talents back to Cleveland. Um, and then my association with Case Western Reserve University started off kind of innocently enough as, as an adjunct professor, just teaching one course. They were looking for somebody to teach the class on venture capital. It's called entrepreneurial finance. And then I started adding another course in here and ultimately ended up taking a full-time position in the business school as a non-tenure track uh, professor. So many, many business schools hire folks that don't have PhDs, but have experience working in the private sector. So did that. And then more recently added to my portfolio at the university running our Veal Institute for Entrepreneurship. And that sits on the seventh floor of Thinkbox and reports in essentially to the provost office. And the provost is the sort of top academic um, officer at a university. So we, in that role, I, I work kind of around our whole campus around entrepreneurship. I, I maintain my faculty appointment. So um, yeah, really love being on a university campus and working with students and alums. And yeah, that's a little bit of my narrative. So having had real, I think, experience with all parts of the entrepreneurial whole, you know, venture capital, operating, startup environment, academia, talent. Did you envision that, you know, this was the, this is where in that hole you would, you would be. And I guess in reflection, you know, what, what kind of drew you to, to this space of, of education and academia? I've got my 25th Wharton reunion coming up in about a month. And my friends that, I mean, I didn't, I barely like said a word in business school. So it's quite humorous <laughs> to them that I'm actually a business school professor. I mean, I was coming out of the nonprofit sector into business school, but actually found Wharton a really wonderful place to kind of explore and, and test myself. And actually I found, even though I had a nonprofit background, a lot of the things that I had done in the nonprofit world in terms of setting up programs and distribution networks and marketing have application in the private sector. You know, I've really enjoyed my association with Case Western Reserve University. I'm not an alum, but as a Clevelander, um, and you made reference, Jeffrey, at the beginning of the podcast to the importance, the important role that academic institutions or sort of anchor institutions play in a community. It was clear to me that this, and it, it's not a, it's, it's, it's no secret. I mean, we're the, you know, the largest research university in Northeast Ohio, one of the, they're called R1, sort of tier one research universities, there's three in the state of Ohio. So we're a really important player in research. We're a really important player in turning out talent. We have an awesome alumni base. So I've, I've loved this as a perch to kind of roll my sleeves up and, and see what small contribution I can make in supporting entrepreneurship in our region kind of through through a role at the university. So if you indulge a, a little detour here into a, a part of your experience that I want to talk a little bit about before we make our way back to, to the alumni fund, surrounding the the kind of MOOC creation and all the work that that went into that and, and particularly through the lens of you know the the Cleveland case study. You know, you had talked about it in your your TED talk, which I believe was was titled something like, you know, beyond Silicon Valley, right? And from the late 1800s to the mid, 
you know, 1970s, Cleveland was a top 10 city in the country with regard to population and historically, you know, industrious and entrepreneurial powerhouse, uh, home to the, the, the great business titans, as they say, like Rockefeller. And, and something I learned from, from your TED Talk that I didn't even realize at the time was that I believe in 2001, Entrepreneur Magazine had done this ranking of cities in terms of entrepreneurship, and Cleveland had actually come in, in dead last. Um, and now, now, obviously, a lot can change in the, the 20 plus years since. And, and I, I believe a, a lot has with people who have come on this podcast alone to share their stories as a, as a testament to, to some of the positive change. But I do think it's important to ground yourself in, in the reality of things as they are and were, however you know, they, they may be, so that you can have an understanding of the real options you have going forward. And otherwise, you're somewhat deluding yourself to, to what those options might be. So I'm curious, you know, this, this amount of time later, you know, what is, what is your assessment of, of where we are? What are the, the challenges we face, our trajectory? How, how has it changed? No, thanks. Um, and just for a little context on the MOOC, and there may be listeners that have never heard that term, which was true for me when my dean asked me if I would consider doing one. So MOOC stands for Massive Open Online Course. Coursera is is one of the largest platforms for MOOCs, and the university, Case Western Reserve, had partnered with Coursera to kind of begin to explore offering these online courses to, to a broader community outside of, you know, the folks that we, that we educate. I mean, we're a, a private university here. We have about 6,000 undergrads, a little bit more, 6,000 grad students. So, you know, you're reaching 12,000 students at a time, but these MOOCs can reach a heck of a lot more people. So the idea for the MOOC grew out of uh, essentially the first Fulbright that I got, which I applied for on a complete whim and moved my family to Hanoi, Vietnam. And I was asked by the um, a government agency, the ministry of, within the Ministry of Science and Technology, they had a national agency for technology, entrepreneurship, and commercialization, if I could do a seminar for them about how Vietnam could become more like Silicon Valley or become Silicon Valley. And at that point, I had sort of been there for a couple months and said, you know, you guys look more like Cleveland than you do Silicon Valley. And, you know, I'm, I, of course they were like, what's Cleveland? Um, <laughs> wasn't necessarily a, a city that is often, you know, uh, comes up when you think about models for entrepreneurship, but what I shared with them in the seminar and I ended up including and was using Skype back then for another <laughs> throwback, you get AOL and Skype in the same podcast. So we were, and it was, there's a 12 hour time difference. So kind of evening in Hanoi and morning here, I, was joined by Lisa Delp, who used to be the executive director of the Ohio Third Frontier, which, as many of your listeners probably know, if you're Cleveland-based, is is our state program, $2.3 billion program that supports tech commercialization and entrepreneurship. Lena Angries, who's a good friend who at the time was at Jumpstart, joined via Skype. Steve Gerard, who's a Case Western Reserve University alum, who at the time was at Johnson & Johnson. So we talked about different things that Cleveland was doing. And then when I came back to Cleveland, um, I'd had a conversation with Deb Hoover from the Burton D. Morgan Foundation about potentially turning this case study into a MOOC. And they were nice enough to provide some funding. And I worked with a friend of mine that was a former 60 Minutes producer to help tell the story and another great local team, um, Northwater Partners. And, you know, we put the, the this Cleveland case study, as you mentioned, up there 
not really being sure if anybody would be interested in it. This is relatively early in the MOOC sort of arc. And so it went up in 2014 and like many courses that are on Coursera's platform, or at least a lot of the, or at least some of them, you know, we, we found that there was a, an interesting appetite from particularly international audiences. So we ended up, the MOOC is, is now translated in 16 different languages with subtitles in those languages, you know, ranging from Khmer to Farsi to Chinese to Spanish to Kinyarwandan. I mean, it just was so interesting to see that there was an appetite. I think the Silicon Valley story and all the excitement and famous companies and iconic names, like everybody enjoys watching, you know, TV shows and things about all these people. But like, yeah, it turns out, I think the Cleveland experience and, you know, Jeffrey, I know you've been here for a few years coming from New York, like, this is a more challenging environment to support entrepreneurship and we're using government money and we're using philanthropy and we're using private money. So I've enjoyed, and I've gotten to do a ton of travel even since that Vietnam experience. I mean, I've probably done 30 different workshops around the world. The U S state department has been a really great partner. I've done some work with Microsoft and, you know, you know, sort of proudly taking our Cleveland experience and, you know, it's, it's, it's not a perfect experience as you know, well, there's some things I think that we've done here that we we can be quite proud of. We've experimented. Um, I just had in class last week, Brian Verne, who in 2016 ended up not getting funding from Jumpstart and a few local folks and then went out to California and was in 500 startups. And Ray Leach from Jumpstart wrote a piece and said, hey, it's okay. Not every company is going to sort of stay in Cleveland and then Brian, like a week later, wrote back. He was like, actually, it's a big problem that, you know, Cleveland wasn't able to keep me. So he was in class. It's just interesting. I mean, now Brian's first company failed. His second one has raised a good amount of venture capital. So, you know, we're, I think we're a work in progress. I think our progress will be measured over decades with all the different entrepreneurs and folks in the ecosystem that you've had on. I mean, there's a bunch of people in Cleveland who kind of wake up every day thinking about, opportunities to strengthen the support for startups here and some of it's worked and some of it hasn't worked so well. Hmm. From the the MOOC standpoint and, and just you know pulling in your your experience in you know the actual education piece, it's it's something I've thought actually a lot about, but how do you teach entrepreneurship? Like can you actually teach entrepreneurship? <laughs> the age old question. Are entrepreneurs made or born? You know, I, I think in some ways, like my approach with my MOOC, um, in some ways, like mirrors my, even my classroom work here, you know, whether it's a Brian Verne or, you know, other speakers, David Boone, we've had in class this year. I mean, I, I love much like you're doing with your podcast. I mean, sort of creating a forum for folks that are experiencing capital raising, experiencing trying to build a business, experiencing you know, the challenge of, of product market fit. I mean, there, 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 there are a whole host of challenges that make the decision that one takes to sort of take an entrepreneurial journey. I mean, folks know it's going to be hard. And I think, in, it, and it's hard anywhere, right? It doesn't matter if you're in San Francisco, Austin, Tel Aviv, Cleveland, Hanoi. But I, I do think that, and you know, I'm hopeful. I mean, I'm not saying that I've done anything so perfectly or even my colleagues that teach entrepreneurship wherever we do it, you know, because there's, there's plenty of entrepreneurs that like didn't graduate from college, let alone 
take entrepreneurship classes, let alone get an MBA. So um, I think providing a forum through which students can get a deeper understanding of, of how others have tried to do some of these things, I think can be a really rich way to share experiences. It doesn't mean that I'm churning out. I mean, frankly, you know, even at a place like Kiss Western Reserve University, where we have, I think, a number of students that are incredibly accomplished and want to go on to do startups and some do. I mean, you know, if we can just give people a taste of it and then maybe they go get a job at an Eaton or a Key or IBM, wherever, and, you know, maybe they come back to this later. So I'm, you know, when we measure our quote unquote success at a university and in, in, in the entrepreneurship space, I admit maybe I'm just being a little self-interested because we don't create tons. We actually have our our signature um, Morgan Thaler Pavey startup competition is coming up. And, um, you know, we have a great pipe. We have like a record number of people that are pitching and we have new tracks and all these things. But, you know, I mean, it may very well be that student that, that was an engineer and took an entrepreneurship class and goes and does something more traditional. And then they come back to this later. So, um, you know, in tracking them and keeping in touch, you know, even with tools like LinkedIn, which do help um, a little bit, you know, um, you know, is something that someone did during their time here that planted that little bit of a kernel of an idea. Maybe they come back to it in 10 or 15 years. Yeah. Well, I mean, certainly, you know, folks coming through Case Western are building things and right, we've, we've been able to document some of those here. But yeah, I, I always come back to it because, you know, from my, my own perspective, uh, having come to Cleveland originally through Venture for America, which I think shares this ethos of trying to teach entrepreneurship. I, there's always this tension to me between learning and practice and learning and theory. And, and I don't know, where, where I've kind of come to on it is that the, there's, there's one of these mental models, which is kind of trite, but it's the, the map is, is never the territory because the best maps are imperfect and, you know, they, they are necessarily reductions of what they're trying to represent. And so it's, no, I absolutely agree. Of, I mean, it's interesting, you know, just in the podcasting world in which you've planted yourself in, I mean, the, um, there's the podcast startup, which is a company called Gimlet Media, which was acquired by, acquired by Spotify. Like there's an episode called in season one of startup called how to divide an imaginary pie. And it is just such a brilliantly produced episode. I don't do you, have, have you listen to that startup, Jerry? No, I haven't. That, so, um, or that podcast. So in this episode, and it's produced, I mean, the the founder of Gimlet is a guy named um, Alex Bloomberg, who was on This American Life. I mean, he, you know, he was one of the, he was a great public media producer. But on this episode, it was a founder negotiating with someone that would be a, a joining as a co-founder in the startup. And they sent the recording equipment. So they, they recorded their negotiation as they were negotiating equity, which is always a very, you know, can be a very contentious, difficult discussion, right? I mean, the, I think the, the, the guy who was coming in initially wanted 50-50, right? And Alex Bloomberg wanted to do 90-10. But the brilliant thing they did in the podcast was they sent the recording equipment home for each of the two and then they ended up being co-founders, co-founders to have a discussion with their wives about the negotiation. Mm. And, you know, the, it all came back together later. I mean, obviously they didn't play it while they were negotiating. And then, I mean, they ended up at sort of 60-40, but it was just that, you know, I mean, when I was 
and I'm assuming even Jeffrey, you're younger than me. When you were in school, like you, you know, you didn't have professors assigning podcasts. I assigned that podcast in class, and I've had actually Matt Lieber, who's the co-founder, not not in the past couple of years, um, come in as a surprise guest because we'll listen to it and we have different pieces of tape. So, you know, whether it's that, whether it's a book, the book Venture Deals, which was written by Brad Feld and Jason Mendelson, which is a really yeah. great kind of glossary book of, of deals. So in this sort of quote unquote teaching of entrepreneurship, like we have some great tools out there. I mean, no offense to like textbook, you know, makers because <laughs> yeah. they still are out there in the world. But like, I don't, my whole syllabus is just a bunch of like podcasts and I do use venture deals and articles and, you know, and then like when SVB goes down, you know, it's like, then we're talking about it in class. It's like, what, you know, what can we sort of pull from the headlines? A lot of times I'll do that. I'll sort of literally call it like pull from the headlines and try to pull stuff because, yeah. you know, that's, I think that's a rich opportunity. I, I agree with you there. It's a much higher fidelity of material that you can work with today. It's, it's not so much of a reduction. And I think it's actually a great segue to talk about the uh, alumni venture fund, because I think in practice, as I understand it, what, what it is, is more of an apprenticeship where it's teaching and doing at the same time, which which maybe is is the best hybrid. No, so we're lucky actually in Northeast Ohio. There's an organization called the Northeast Ohio Student Venture Fund, um, which was started probably about ten years ago, funded with support from the Burton D. Morgan Foundation um, initially. And there's several university chapters. We have one at Case Western Reserve, but Worcester, Akron, Kent, Cleveland State a few other sort of in the region. And, and, and that was set up actually as a way for students to come together and, and do due diligence, which is the sort of process by which, you know, investors are sort of engaging with potential companies to invest in. And they're making decisions about deploying capital into, into companies. We also have sent from our university students to participate in something called the venture capital investment competition, which is run out of university of North Carolina, which is another awesome way for students to kind of get, I mean, that's a simulation, but to kind of get, get experience in venture. I mean, this, you know, when I first came to teach at, at Case Western Reserve University, I mentioned this first class was obviously a venture capital class. So there's like a tremendous amount of interest hmm. in how investors think about investing in companies. And over the past few years, there's been a growth in, in broadly speaking, alumni funds. And there's a couple different ways that these funds have been set up. So the alumni ventures group, um, a, uh, shortened to AVG, operates 21 of these funds. They started, was a Dartmouth alum. Those are for-profit private funds that sit outside a university that are investing in, let's, let's say Dartmouth, now they have 21, is Dartmouth, Princeton, Cornell, Northwestern, you know, alums of those universities students spin outs and they also actually kind of count if you would be if, if it's if there's an alumni investor in the deal so those sit outside the university are sort of for-profit and they they sort of pull on the heartstrings or loyalties that alums of those universities have you know their their pitch is basically hey don't you love mit or princeton or dartmouth which one don't you want you want to invest and sort of support now interestingly they're doing it out of their investment pocket not their donor pocket Another model, which is actually the path that we took, um, and there's something called the Wolverine Fund out of the University of Michigan, which is donations to the university, then with with 
faculty in the case of University of Michigan and now kind of with case sort of involved in, in helping overseeing, but really the due diligence process like Northeast Ohio's student venture fund kind of led by students. And so that's the path we took. The The Veal Foundation, which is the endowed our, our institute that I run, the Veal Institute for Entrepreneurship, I had talked to them about the fact that we at the university didn't have this kind of a vehicle, you know, and I know it's a topic that's come up you know, and, and with entrepreneurs that you've talked to kind of access to capital, I mean, they're, and it's kind of interesting that what getting access to a deal, I mean, oftentimes, because you're in these situations, whether it's alumni venture group or us, you're joining in syndicates, so you're not leading a deal. So you're, there's got to be a lead that's sort of formed. You're, you're just joining some of the deals that we, um, cause we, we, have put $200,000 to work already just in kind of what we were calling a demonstration period last year to sort of see if we could get into deals. We actually decided to mm. not look at deals in which the, the alums or an investor were like, all right, let's just stick to alumni founders, spin outs or students and see if we can get into deals. Some of the deals were like oversubscribed. There was sort of no room. And because of the relationship that we, because we sit at the university have, they made room for us. Some were smaller rounds. The you know the, many of these funds, including ours, are stage agnostic. So you could do a later stage deal. It, it tends the deal flow tends to be earlier stage, sort of seed, Series A, and yeah, it's been really interesting. So I think we we sort of proved out at least over last year that we could get access to interesting deal flow. We did six deals. Two of the six were here in Northeast Ohio. Four were outside the region. One was a spin out. And, you know, we're actively deploying capital in, in new companies now. We're, we're doing some fundraising against the initial commitment from the Veal Foundation. So it's been a lot of fun. I mean, I think you said it right at the beginning. I mean, it's an awesome teaching vehicle. I have a really great group of students that are cross-disciplinary, very diverse. So I have some medical students I have two MD PhDs. Uh, I've got Weatherhead School of Management students. I have engineering students. I have a, a law student. I'm recruiting this week a nursing student. We've got eight schools at the university, and um, you know my goal is to actually mine talent from all of them. So it's been a lot of fun. I'm really I'm really enjoying it and seeing the students because they're making real investments, like you know, get getting their due diligence shops and interacting. I think in a way that that's a, a real pleasure to see interacting with with startup founders in a way that that I think makes the universe makes me proud and makes the university proud because they're asking great questions and and building networks. So it's been a lot of fun. No, it seems like really incredible progress. Uh, very exciting prospects for it. When when you think about the the fund overall, I guess what is the 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 broader vision you have for it is it as a, a a teaching vehicle is it you know in the in the context of this evergreen and philanthropically funded model something else you know what is the the overall you know objective here well the the, the evergreen term which means basically you're um, with success from these investments you're sort of pooling that money back into the pot has been done very well by our friends at Jumpstart. So, you know, and, and with Cover My Meds being the best example of that, I mean, Jumpstart's made a number of bets and had some success and and the, the, the biggest being Cover My Meds. So like Jumpstart, a part of what we're doing, I mean, I'd say teaching and learning is sort of at the top of the funnel and sort of why we're doing this. But 
picking companies that we believe can be successful is the goal. I mean, that's the teaching goal. You know, we're sort of asking our students to, to make bets on companies that we think will have financial success. And if they do have financial success over time, that money will then go back into the fund to fund new deals. So, you know, I, I think, I mean, University of Michigan's Wolverine Fund started with $2 million, it's up to $7 million. My hope would be is that the legacy of the fund, which includes student learning, which includes really interesting alumni engagement, like it's been a great way. You know, one of the companies that we invested in um, was our first investment. Like the alum really hadn't been engaged in the university at all. And subsequently, he's come back to speak to students on campus. He met with us when we were out in San Francisco. So it's a very cool way to engage with alums. Another initial outcome, which has been cool, which is, has been, which is very hard to do, is that our, one of our students already got a job in venture capital. So seeing our, our fellows, we call them the students that work on this, you know, go and, and work in the venture space may not happen like it did for Amar Kazi right out of school, but we're super proud of that. So, you know, it, it's not the, the, re, the return on investment traditional metrics if we were a private fund that's part of the equation but we got some other things that we're looking to do as well but it does include it does include ROI to piggyback on the conversation we were having earlier about can you teach entrepreneurship i think on the the flip side of the coin you know can you teach venture capital this seems like the the right way to do it i'm curious you know what are the what do you find are the maybe biggest misconceptions people have coming into this uh, that you know because I feel like I'm, we're very deep in this space, and so I'm always kind of interested to to understand, you know, even when I, I use the term Series A casually in conversation, right? Like it's not a term that broadly resonates. And so, um, as you bring in a, a real kind of eclectic, broad group of of students into this world, what are what are the things that we can be doing better to to just kind of quell misconceptions people have about venture capital? Well, one in terms of accessing deals, I think there's folks that aren't close to this world just sort of assume, oh, okay, well, we just venture capital is just to like, you know, go pick the best companies and invest in them. That presumes that you have access. Um, Tim Milanich, who is our chief investment officer at the university and is as a partner of mine in helping with this alumni fund, talks about venture capital as an access class, not an asset class. And, you know, interestingly, you know, probably our, our most, I don't know, fam- we have lots of famous alums, including like maybe our most famous entrepreneurial alum is like Dow from Dow Chemical from, you know, graduated from Case Institute of Technology, I don't know, 100 years ago. But in more recent memory, there's four alums, Stan Garber, Alex uh, Yakubovich, Chris Crane, and Andrew Derlich founded a company called Scout RFP out on the West Coast. It was sold to Workday for over $600 million. So Stan and Alex... And I know them both. I didn't have them in class, but they have a new company that they started about a year ago. You know, I was like, hey, can you make room for us in the deal? And, you know, part of our <laughs> hypothesis was we could get into these deals. You know, we know them. They're sort of proud of, I mean, scout for alums. And, you know, basically, like in this case, like Benchmark, this is one of the league funds, like took the whole rent. Like there wasn't room. And I was begging you, I was like, you know, and it's been interesting because we mostly got access to deals. That one we were not, you know, we're hoping maybe Stan and Alex, if you're listening for the next round, you'll let us in. But um, I think one of the the most common 
it's not a misconception. I just think people don't understand it. They're like, it's not quite as easy as just being like, oh, we'd love to be in Stan and Alex's new company. Like, so, so with everybody. So, you know, how do you, how do you use your networks and relationships? I mean, John Cobbs, who is an alum, who was a, a founder of a company called Apartment List, started a company called um, Wild XYZ, digital art, NFTs, you know, oversubscribed round led by Matrix Ventures with Reed Hoffman and Gwyneth Paltrow. And, all, you know, he made room for us. It was, you know, in a very, you know, didn't, didn't need our money, but made room. So, you know, I mean, we're, we're hoping that, and I think, and I think that's been an interesting teaching moment for um, the students because they sort of see, I mean, the other thing we talk about when you're a joining fund is like, being fast and frictionless in the diligence process. Um, and we sort of joke internally, like we say that we're fast and frictionless and we're neither, right? Because we're learning, right? So we're trying to, because right. we want our students to make informed decisions about due diligence. So that involves having to have a conversation. The CEOs are busy. We'd like to talk to co-investors, but if we're investing a small amount of money, so that's another piece of the puzzle. Like you don't have unlimited time to make a decision on the investment you have, and particularly when you're doing a very small check size and like you're not leading the round, no one is waiting for us to do this. So that's been another, I think, really important teaching moment for the students. Like we've got to go fast or we're going to miss these. Op- if, if we can even get access, we better do this fast or we're going to miss that opportunity. So that's been another really important teaching opportunity as we, as we, you know, as, as we, as we churn out all these venture capitalists among our fellows. Right. No, I think that that's an important point, particularly as I think we often talk about it from the perspective of founders raising capital, how difficult that can be, but that there is this competition amongst investors on the other side of it, trying to, to get access to these deals. And, and it comes down to, to those things like what is, you know, your respect for founders time who, and uh, what is the overall process that you are uh, enabling for founders going through it. And, and those things, I mean, typically, you know, they make their way back to other founders who later are going through the, the diligence process. And that's how, that's how firms get reputations. Uh, and, you know, and even on that point, I mean, working with the students, I mean, if you're going to make an informed decision, I mean, uh, you know, sharing that the, the, the reason is no and why we said no, that's a hard conversation, right? And that's a huge learning opportunity. And, you know, I mean, as, as much as entrepreneurs have have thick skin because they're getting turned down a lot, like they don't love hearing. And, you know, we're part of the university so that there's some interesting dynamics. And, and you know, the students, I've loved watching them learn. I mean, I'm learning a lot and, I you know, I, I have some experience in venture capital. I mean, you know, it's, it's, it is delicate. And, you know, we can't, you know, we're, we're going to say no to more deals than we say yes to, but doing it in a way, as you say, that sort of helps build the reputation of the fund, gets our students a great learning experience. But, you know, it's definitely, we're, we're learning along the way. And I, I think because we have some great students and, you know, I, and I think part of it is getting the, you know, because we have founders that are out there. I mean, many of these founders are sort of, let's say they're in the university family, they're alums or they're spin outs or there's some students, you know, they're. I think they see the value of what we're trying to do, but, you know, telling them no still isn't a lot of fun. So, you know, making sure that we do that in a way that is respectful and communicative 
even if they don't want to hear it. What are uh, some of the other reflections and learnings that that you've had as part of this process? And I, I can throw out a few topics that, that I'd be interested to, to get your perspective on because I don't know there, there are things I think about a lot. <laughs> um, one of them always being the the challenge of more on the the talent side of it from retention and how how you know we can amplify the the efficacy of our own ecosystem ecosystem here through that is. Is there, you know, a, uh, an avenue through which this can, you know, help on the retention side? How how does it work from a, a continuity perspective? You know, as 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 folks graduate, literally, and and new folks have to come into the fund. You know, the the onboarding mechanism for for, for getting people up to speed. Maybe just the, the the role within the greater Cleveland ecosystem. Just a, a few prompts there. Sure. No, I mean, I like you, and I've been here a bit longer. Like, you know, I want to see. The ecosystem thrive. I believe that the university has a really important role to play in that. There are other ecosystems like our friends to the east in Pittsburgh, where Carnegie Mellon and Pitt and their role in, in the ecosystem, you know, and I think we do a good job. I mean, we can always get better, but but folks will point to some of Pittsburgh's success due to the role that Pitt and CMU have played. So I, I think, you know, I, I'm I'm thrilled that that the community looks to Case Western Reserve as a as a critical player here. You know, we have talent. You know, we we as we've become much more of a national and an international university. I mean, just in terms of student flow, I, I don't exactly know what the numbers are, but let's say twenty or thirty years ago, we were you know predominantly an Ohio university in terms of where our talent was coming from, and now like our student talent's coming from everywhere. I mean. Anybody that is listening that is a parent with kids applying to college, they know kind of how crazy down the application process, which is, I think, worked well for us. I mean, I, you know, I don't know for you, Jeffrey, but like I've got a lot of friends on the East Coast. I live on the East Coast. All of a sudden I'm getting all these visits from New York and D.C. and Boston. I mean, we are on the radar, which is awesome, which means that, you know, it's harder to get in here. The talent is better. But this question, as you reference, of of retaining that talent when somebody comes from New York or Boston or San Francisco. Um, and those are pretty vibrant ecosystems. So, you know, some of those folks are going to go back home to where they're from. I, you know, I do think that the alumni fund can play a role in a very small way, you know, with just a little bit of capital and, and helping show entrepreneurs that there's, that there's capital. I mean, not surprisingly, we're looking at co-investing with jumpstart with UH, University Hospital Ventures, and other local investors with North Coast Ventures. So, you know, I think I think we punch under our weight in terms of, of availability of venture capital and angel investing in the region. I don't think, I think most people would agree with that. I mean, we, we actually have a pretty, probably punch over our weight in terms of private equity and the private equity funds that are here. So, you know, even these small efforts, and this is, you know, what we're doing on campus is a relatively small effort. We do have some other funds on campus. There's something called the Spartan Fund, which is run of our, out of our technology transfer office. Now, they're exclusively focused on spin outs of our university. But, you know, I think every little thing helps. And if we can call more attention, you know, another another one of our goals with the fund is is to some degree, and this takes a page from kind of the angel fund approach in which you could have sidecar investments into, into, so we may have a donor that this has not played out yet, but I'm hopeful. Let's say somebody donates to our fund through their involvement with us. They find out about 
a, a spin out or a startup, you know, perhaps one here in Northeast Ohio, and all of a sudden they're they're putting money out of their investment pockets that they've they've been, they've donated out of their donor pocket to the fund, but then they're putting another check to work out of their investment pocket. So I think that while it hasn't happened yet with our because our fund is so new, I'm, I'm hopeful that that may be another way to bring more capital to work to support local startups. Well, yeah, it's it's all it's all very exciting, and hope to you know see you guys get involved in in as many deals as, as possible going forward. I want to leave a little space here because I think just the the breadth of of things that you're involved with uh, through Case outside of Case, you know, just ancillary to, to any of those that that you want to talk about here uh, and unpack that you think are important that, that we haven't really touched on yet. Yeah. I mean, sometimes it's the little things like we, we have our upcoming Morgan Taylor baby startup competition and we're feeding our guests with a student startup called red heart and a, an entrepreneur that we met through the Cleveland central kitchen, which is a really great mm. food hub down on Carnegie. We've done a couple of different projects with them. So um, David Ball, who's an entrepreneur who makes barbecue sauce and, and emerging. So I think one of the things that we, you know, as we start to gather more together, thinking about those community entrepreneurs that are outside of sort of our tech-based high growth startups, like there's just a lot of cool local entrepreneurs and, you know, we got to eat and we got to drink. So I think being thoughtful about where we can and connecting our food buying to sort of local entrepreneurs. So, um, and there's some, I mean, the Cleveland Central Kitchen has like a hundred food entrepreneurs, many of whom I didn't even know about. I mean, I don't know how many times for those who live in Cleveland, like you drive by there. I mean, I never knew what was going inside, but we did a project with them last year. So that's something to think about. I think for those of us that are here, like how can we better connect our checkbooks to the degree anybody actually uses a checkbook anymore? kind of like a Rolodex, um, you know, the, at least our buying power with sort of local, local entrepreneurs, even if they're, you know, not necessarily tech-based entrepreneurs. Yeah, no, Eric's story is, is really fascinating. He, he was actually on the, the podcast a while back and it, it is astonishing the, the number of brands that I think you come across in Cleveland that you, you don't really have a good sense that so many of them came from, from Central Kitchen. It's very cool. Awesome. Well, I'd love to kind of bookend it here with a traditional closing question that we ask for for everyone who comes on the podcast, which is for your favorite hidden gems in Cleveland. You know, I um, you know probably come back to to food. I mean, it's been really fun. I mean, even some of the pop up kitchens. We just had a great meal the other day in the Cats Diner with these two. I mean, they're entrepreneurs. I mean, this couple, I can't even remember the name of the, um, what they're calling their business. It's dumplings. They ran a craft brewery in Beijing for 15 years and she's from China and he's from Cleveland. I just, you know, it's just so awesome. I mean, obviously you count in this category of sort of talent, whether it's through Venture for America, other people who have sort of ended up here. So I think making sure that we support restaurants and, you know, I think coming out of COVID as we start to do more gathering in person. I mean, I think that's the other, I mean, I'm sitting in Thinkbox. I mean, I'd love to issue an invitation for anybody sort of listening who's not been to Thinkbox to sort of come. It's it's um, the largest open access makerspace in the country. And open access means it's open to anyone. And I think, okay, there's, it's, there's not obvious where you park and, you know, there's these, some of these, you know, challenges. Well, and anybody that's lived 
I always find it a little bit amazing being in Cleveland or having lived in other places where people are like complain about parking in Cleveland. I'm like, it's pretty easy to park here, but I won't go down that, that rabbit hole, but um, <laughs> I'd love to encourage people and you can look me up. I'm easy to find on our website and just shoot me an email and happy to show you around. I'm actually sitting right now on our sixth floor of Thinkbox, which is more hotel officing. I mean, anybody can come here and work out of here. I just think, we need to gather more. I know Jeffrey, you and I have run into each other a couple of times at different events on campus and off campus, but like for the most part, many of us haven't seen each other in like three years. And so, um, yeah. you know, would love for Thinkbox to be one of the places that people think of and just like bringing your laptop and working out of here. We have great students in and out of the building and we believe that we have lots of great talent. I mean, one of the great ways to keep people here. One is having them start a business, including the other is like convincing a lot of other entrepreneurs and folks, including to hire these guys. So, um, you know, love to love to have more more folks on campus. Yeah, no, I'll echo that. I I think Thinkbox, Thinkbox in particular is 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 pretty underrated. It's such a incredible asset that that we have here, and I yeah, happy to and to spread the word. It's very it's it's an amazing uh, facility. Awesome. Well. Michael, I really appreciate you taking the time to, to come on and, and share more about yourself and, and the, the work that you're doing. If folks had things that they would like to follow up with you about, what would be the, the best way for them to do so? Sure. Uh, thanks, Jeffrey, for having me. I mean, the easiest is probably email, and it's michael.goldberg at case.edu. LinkedIn has become a very easy way to find each other. So yeah, I mean, any way that people want to connect with me would welcome the chance to to meet and have you on campus and um, have you think box. Wonderful. Well, thank you again, Michael. Great. Thanks, Jeffrey. Really enjoyed it. That's all for this week. Thank you for listening. We'd love to hear your thoughts on today's show. So if you have any feedback, please send over an email to jeffrey at layoftheland.fm or find us on Twitter at podlayoftheland or at sternhefe, J-E-F-E. If you or someone you know would make a good guest for our show, please reach out as well and let us know. And if you enjoy the podcast, please subscribe and leave a review on iTunes or on your preferred podcast player. Your support goes a long way to help us spread the word and continue to bring the Cleveland founders and builders we love having on the show. We'll be back here next week at the same time to map more of the land. The Lay of the Land podcast was developed in collaboration with the Up Company LLC. At the time of this recording, unless otherwise indicated, we do not own equity or other financial interests in the company which appear on the show. All opinions expressed by podcast participants are solely their own and do not reflect the opinions of any entity which employs us. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. Thank you for listening, and we'll talk to you next week.